Welcome to all of you. Glad to see you today. We're glad that you're in worship with us here at First Free. I apologize for coming in late. I was spending time with one of our adult classes this morning, sitting with them in their conversation and lesson. It was a great time this morning, but thankful for uh, Ed and his leadership, Pastor Camille, and for everyone kind of holding things while I'm able to go do an opportunity like that and get back over here to join you in time for worship. Um, This morning, we're going to be turning our attention to uh, the topic of hope. And uh, one of the scriptures that helps us do that is from Lamentations chapter 3. We're going to put it up on the screen right now. I'm going to read it to you. And uh, we discovered at the earlier service this morning that that particular translation is not actually the common English Bible, the CEB. It's something else, and we don't know what it is. So we're just going to roll with it. So I'm going to read it off the screen. If you're following along in your pew Bible, just recognize the translation is going to be a little different than what you see there. Lamentation says, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let's pray together. God, we pray that as we spend some time this day Hearing your word in this passage of scripture, we pray, God, that you would speak deeply into our hearts and into our lives, that we might look and long for your hope in a new way. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, of course, as January draws to a close, there's a lot of these things that happen at the beginning of January, like New Year's resolutions, for example, or oftentimes there's some polling that takes place about what people hope or expect for the coming year. And I looked up one of them just as I was going about the process of preparing for this message today, and CBS News did a poll toward the very, very beginning of 2023 and asked people about what they expected or what they thought about the coming year. And what we learned in the poll is that 49% of the people are scared about 2023. 49% of the people. But yet 47% of the people are hopeful. I guess we're still a house divided between hope and fear. describe themselves as angry, and only 11% describe themselves as excited about the year that's to come. It seems like whenever we talk about the topic of hope, there's always this way it devolves into a conversation of whether the glass is half empty or the glass is half full. And hope is what we want to focus on today. This passage from Lamentations will help us. We're continuing in a series of messages called Value the Difference. And today, this focus on hope is about how Christians, followers of Jesus, hold on to hope in a unique, peculiar, unusual sort of way. 
And the, the notion of this entire series is that there's a set of values we have as followers of Jesus that make us distinct in the world in which we live. And hope is a great example of how we're called to live in a way that's different from the broader world and the community around us in a way that we stand out. So folks might ask us the question, why are you so hopeful? And when they ask, we can then name the name of Jesus and describe the hope that we have in him. But hope does begin somewhere. And what Lamentations teaches us is that hope begins with lament. After all, the book is called Lamentations. Lamentations was written in a time in in Jewish history that was a moment of deep reflection for the community. The kingdom of Israel split in half after the death of King Solomon, and the two southern kingdoms, uh, tribes, were called Judah. And the Judeans occupied this area for several hundred years until about 605 BCE, and they were conquered by what was called the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Don't worry, there's not a test on this, all right? They were conquered by Babylonians, but when the Babylonians conquered them, they took all of the Judeans and picked them up and took them to Babylon in exile. They burned to the ground many of their homes. They destroyed the Jewish temple that had been built by King Solomon, planned by King David. They were completely destitute and exiled people. And so much of what we know as the Old Testament was written during this period of time. It's actually when it went to uh, paper, papyrus as it were, and they wrote many of the stories we know in the Bible from this perspective of being in exile. So how did we get here? How did this calamity come upon us? What does it mean for us to, to be away from our homeland? What does it mean for the promises and faithfulness of God for us to find ourselves in this particular situation. And Lamentations is one of those books. It's a reflection on that particular moment in time for the Jewish people. But Lamentations is incredibly helpful for us because it names that hope begins with lament. Look at how the book starts. In chapter 3, verse 19, it says, Remember my misery and my homelessness, the wormwood and bitterness. My soul certainly remembers And my translation says, my soul is bent over within me. So get that image of being bent over, the the weight of that moment just coming down upon you. This is what lament means, to hold all of that at any given moment in time. I, I want to be, before I continue, very clear that there are ways in which people today are experiencing a variety of issues surrounding anxiety and depression. And that's not necessarily what I'm trying to name here this morning. Those realities of anxiety and depression, whether the depression is clinical or situational, oftentimes requires the help of professionals to come alongside us and accompany us as we deal with different forms of mental illness. So I'm not approaching the message with you today from the standpoint of, well, if you just do these five easy things, it'll cure depression. That's that's, could, I couldn't be farther from the truth. What I simply want to name is there's a way in which when we encounter disappointment, when we encounter trauma, when we encounter painful moments in our lives, there's a way in which we hold on to hope as Christians that's unique and very distinct in the world in which we live. And that's a, a different topic 
than how we are as a church and as a community of people to address mental illness and those who are struggling with such things. My mother was bipolar, so I know to some degree what it's like to, to process with family members what it's like to move through that time and that season, and I know how difficult it can be. So I just want to make sure we're very clear. We're not talking about that. We're talking about this, this notion of how we hold lament. Now, sometimes when we get into these moments of deep lament or grief or trouble in our own lives, we need help from friends or family. Sometimes we might seek out spiritual counsel from a pastor or another leader we know. And sometimes we even find help with seeing a therapist or a counselor that can help us process what we're going through in our own lives. Lament is the acceptance of helplessness. Lament is the acceptance of helplessness. But it's not hopelessness. We're going to talk more about that in a moment. It's the acceptance of helplessness. A a, a Catholic author that can give us some insight into this is a man named Henri Nouwen, and he was a prolific writer and thinker in the 20th century. And Nouwen writes this, nobody escapes being wounded. We are all wounded people, whether physically, emotionally, mentally or spiritually, the main question is not how can we hide our wounds so we don't have to be embarrassed, but how can we put our woundedness in service to others when our wounds cease to be a source of shame and become a source of healing, we have become wounded healers. And this text is extracted from Nowen's book called The Wounded Healer, in which he spends a terrific amount of time talking about how it is we process some of our own woundedness so that it becomes redemptive for other people. It's a way of helping other people, a healing presence, if you will. But that can only happen if we're willing to spend some time in lament with it. Now, I'll give you another example of how lament works. Now, over the 30-so weeks I've been with you as the pastor of our church, I probably have mentioned at least one time that, that I have a broken relationship with my father. I have not spoken to my father or seen my father in uh, about 24, 25 years. And that's of his choosing, not mine. There's been many attempts, at least I've tried to make, to bridge that gap and make some reconciliation with my dad but my dad is in a space and a time which that's just not possible for him. Uh, my dad was born in 1936, so he'll be 87 years old uh, later this year in July. So, of course, I remember him often on my birthday. My father and I were very close as I was growing up as a child. And many of the things I learned in terms of life skills and wisdom and my attempt to be a person of integrity, I learned from my dad. But uh, it's been a real tragedy because my father hasn't seen either one of his grandchildren grow up. I am his only child, and he has not been able to participate in our life by his own choosing. That's a deep wound for me. It's been a deep wound in my life for a long time. So even today, after 25 years, I tell you all honestly, I love my father and I miss him, but the reality of the situation we live in is of his choosing, and I can't fix that. I can't repair it. There's nothing I can do to try to force him to come back into relationship with me. When we talk about being helpless, that's what we mean. Helpless. 
As much as I'd like to fix that relationship, I cannot. I can only hold within my own responsibility what I can do with it. And so one of the things I have to be always aware of is that when someone else exhibits to me the behaviors that look like my father, they speak to me like my father, or they even embody in front of me in some way the look of my father and their facial expression, I have to constantly remind myself that that person in front of me is not my father. As much as it might trigger me to respond that way, I have to learn that's not the case. So after spending some good time with therapists, deep prayer and self-reflection, the Lord is healing me from that. See, it's the only thing I can be responsible for. But that doesn't mean I don't lament it. It doesn't mean I ignore it. It's like what Nowen is trying to say in that quote I shared a moment ago. We have to find a way to let that woundedness become a, a, a way in which we can experience healing, not only for ourselves, but for, for other people. Lament is the beginning of hope. Because lament is the acknowledgement or the acceptance of helplessness. And not many of us like that feeling. Not many of us like being helpless. Sometimes we're helpless because a relationship breaks, like mine with my father. Sometimes helplessness is medical diagnosis. Sometimes helplessness is losing a job. Sometimes helplessness is having to relocate against your will, like a refugee. I mean, there are so many dimensions to helplessness. But what Scripture is telling us is that we have to start there. We have to start with spending time with that. So a couple of questions for you to wonder about this week are this. What struggle or painful moment in your life do you often avoid? And another question then would be, how might you spend time in that place this week? How might you spend time in that place this week? Often in the moment of helplessness, when we realize that there's no, no remedy or no easy fix to whatever situation we find ourselves in, we fall victim to one or two things. Oftentimes we engage in flight, we run away, or we decide we're going to stay and fight. And this flight or fight instinct within us runs very strong. And see, my friends, this is what I would suggest to us is the distinctive value we hold as Christians, that our work is not flight or fight, that there's another way in which we're called to live in the midst of those moments of deep pain in our lives. And that way we're called to live is the thing that makes us stand out, that makes us manifest a way of hope that I think people desperately need in the age that we're in. Listen to what it says in Lamentations chapter 3. In the verses that follow the ones I read, verses 22 to 24, it says, The Lord's acts of mercy indeed do not end, for his compassions do not fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I wait for him. Now, it's out of keeping with our service at 11 o'clock, but perhaps you might have sang the hymn before, Great is thy faithfulness. It's typically the only part of the book of Lamentations people know because that hymn is lifted from this very text. Great is your faithfulness. Now, 
I said a moment ago that I'd come back to this notion of hopelessness and helplessness. Helplessness is our acceptance, our acceptance, right? That there's nothing we can do to fix our situation. So help, when we're helpless, we know that we can't run and we know that we can't fight. That the reality is what it is. Hopelessness is different, though. Hopelessness is the belief that we will never see things change. We will never see things change. And my friends, I would suggest to you today that our world is sick and ailing from hopelessness. That there are so many that have lost hope. They just don't think things can change. People can change. Systems can change. So they just quit. Hopelessness is not the same as helplessness. Helplessness is an acknowledgement that we cannot change the reality we're in. So then if we can't run away from it and we can't fight it, then what are we supposed to do? Ah, this is where it gets good. What does the text tell us in verse 22? It says, the Lord's acts of mercy indeed do not end. So just poll the audience. For those of you who watched online last week or were here last week, raise your hand for a minute. Okay, you might remember this word. I'm going to stick it into that verse. You ready? The Lord's acts of chesed do not end. That's the Hebrew word. Therefore, mercy, it, it can be translated loving kindness, faithfulness, fidelity, that the Lord's acts of consistency never change. They don't end. And then it says in the very next phrase, for his compassions, they fail not. That word in Hebrew for compassions is the same root word as the word for womb. And so the imagery of that verse is very maternal. It's this idea that God's compassions are like the nurture of a womb. It's life-giving. It's sustaining. It's protecting, and you will. But the most important reality of a womb is there's no life outside of it. That we're constantly enveloped and held within the great and mighty compassion of God. They're new every morning in verse 23. In other words, they never are exhausted. Every single morning, there are new things. There are new mercies every day. Great is your faithfulness, the text tells us. Never forgetting, always with us. So hope is grounded in the reality that salvation comes from the Lord. Hope is grounded in the reality that salvation comes from the Lord. So arriving at the point of helplessness helps us acknowledge that hope. So until we get to the place in our life where we truly feel helpless about the particular situation, it becomes hard for us to hope because it's in that moment that God moves. As soon as we say, God, I'm at the end of my rope. God, I can't change this. Lord, I can't run from this. I can't fight it. It is what it is. That's the moment in which we display great hope. And the first church I ever served back in uh, the mid-1990s was in Capistrano Beach, California. And I can tell you, for those of you who may know this great myth, the swallows do return to Capistrano, but there's usually only about five of them. That's all that come back. The rest are pigeons. So when all the tourists come to watch the swallows return, 
they say, oh, look at the swallow. Pigeon. Don't tell them. Just let them live with the myth that all the swallows come back to Capistrano. When I served that church, I went there in 1994, and when I arrived, there was a woman in that church. Her name was Diana Brownson. And uh, she was a, just a remarkable human being, a great saint, a, a devout, devout person of prayer. Just was so committed to the spiritual life of that congregation that I served. And I was an associate pastor, and the senior pastor I had at that time, his name was Bruce. And uh, Diana was fabulous. She was dynamic. She knew how to do all sorts of things. She led our vacation Bible school. She was a presence in the life of the church. What I learned soon after I arrived is that she had just gone through a life-threatening round fighting breast cancer. And she came out on the other side of it in remission and was thriving in the season of her life when I met her for the first time. Within a couple of years, Diana's breast cancer returned. And after going through a whole round of treatments, chemotherapy, radiation, and a variety of things, it became clearer and clearer that she probably would not beat that cancer this time around, barring a miracle from God. And so as she came to grips with that helplessness about her situation, it was a deep struggle for her. Struggle for her husband, Bill, for their two children, David and Meredith, uh, who were both early teenagers in my youth ministry at that time. It was hard for Diana to wrestle with what it meant after spending all that time in devotion to the Lord, all that prayer, all that life given to God, how she could find herself in that particular moment. Not too long before Diana died, she was at home in bed, and she needed to get up to go to the bathroom, and there was no one there at that particular moment to help her. And so being who she was, she decided to make the journey from her bed to the bathroom on her own. So she got up, walked across the bedroom to the bathroom, walked into the bathroom, and the way she describes the story, as soon as she walked into the bathroom, she saw a great light, and no, she did not turn on the light switch. And when she walked into the bathroom, she saw this great light. And she looked in the bathroom, and there appeared to her in her bathroom was Jesus himself. She had a vision of Jesus in her bathroom. So she went back to her bed, and for the next several days, everybody that came and visited her, Bruce did, I did, of course her own family were there in the house with her, People were coming by to visit with her. She told every single person that story about having had a vision of Jesus in the bathroom. And not too many days after that, Diana died. You see, when she came to the point in her journey of helplessness, when she had this awareness, she could not change what was happening. It's then she was filled with her greatest hope. So even in her dying, she was filled with hopefulness. Such a powerful story for me to learn. I was at the ripe old age of 27 years old when that happened.
some questions I want you to wonder about this week. What part of your life causes you to feel helpless? Is there any way of avoiding this? And then another question. Describe a time in your life when you felt you had nothing left to do but trust God. What happened? Our tendency is to fight or flight, to run away, to hide, to escape, or to stay and fight it out. There is a third option. And it's the option to which I believe the followers of Jesus are called to. It is the distinct way that we're called to live a life of hope in a world that's dying from hopelessness. And it's to wait. What did the writer of Lamentations say in verse 24? The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I wait for him. I wait for him. Diana waited until three or four days before she died for him. But he came. You see, waiting is not passive as we often think it is. Oftentimes, we make the mistake of believing that that waiting for something is wasting time. That waiting is like when you have to go to the doctor's office and read a three-year-old issue of Cosmopolitan for an hour before the doctor will see you. It is not a waste of time. The waiting we practice in hopefulness is very different. It's actually quite active. It's deeply engaged. It requires something from us. The text in Lamentations goes on and tells us in verse 25, it is good to await and seek the Lord. In verse 26, it said it is good to wait silently. In verse 27, it says it's good to wait with tongue in cheek, good to wait when you're young rather than when you're old. It's good to be alone and be quiet in verse 29. It's good to pray in verse 29. The the Hebrew of that text is so unique because it uses the word good every single verse. It repeats it again and again and again. It's good to do these things when you wait. But the last one, number five, is so compelling to me. It's good to pray, and it describes it as having your face in the dust. So there's a posture of prayer where people are on their knees And they're bowed down to the ground in such a way that their face is in the dirt. This is the form of prayer, the modality of prayer, that is the most desperate. It's like literally when you've got nothing left, when there's no option, you put your face in the ground and bow down before God and say, God, I'm helpless. But I am not hopeless. Learning this skill is hard. It's hard because it requires us to practice modesty, humility, and prayer. Waiting is not bitter, and waiting is not angry. If it is, I would advise you to go back to step one of today's sermon. Hope begins in lament. Spend more time lamenting if you're bitter or angry. Waiting is not quitting. It's not resignation. It is the most hopeful act we have of trusting that God will provide exactly what we need, exactly when we need it.
It also affords God the opportunity to do something that's on God's own terms, not ours. You see, over the years I've been a pastor, oh gosh, 30, almost 30 years, I've gone to a lot of people's bedsides, and I've anointed a lot of people with oil. I've read the 23rd Psalm a lot. I've given them communion a lot, and they die. What I've learned, at least in my own experience about that, is that it's sometimes God's purpose and call that that person not be physically healed. So when I pray for them, I use kind of peculiar words now. And the words I use are, God, I pray that you would bring healing to so-and-so in whatever way you need to bring it. And for some of those people, their healing is their dying. You see, hopefulness presses us completely into the heart of God. Hopefulness is what makes us distinct. Because as I mentioned, our world is sick right now from a lack of hope. Cynicism and hopelessness is a bitter disease plaguing us. And that is not our story, friends. Our story is one of hope. So today, we're going to try something. And what we're going to try is exactly what the text tells us to do. I'm kind of a radical thinker in this way that when we read the Bible, sometimes we should actually try what it says to do. So that's what we're going to do. Today, we're going to pray in a moment and invite you to come forward for communion like we do every week. But Pastor Camille and I are going to be over here on the sides, and we're going to have a small little bit of anointing oil with us. And if you would like to spend time today seeking God's hope for your life or the life of someone else or something you've been carrying for years, we'll anoint you with oil, and then I would invite you to come try praying that desperate sort of prayer. You may even want to put your face in the ground. That's okay. But we want to do the very thing that we believe the Lord tells us to do, and that is to put all of our trust, all of our hope, everything we have in him, because we're helpless. And Jesus is our only hope. So let's pray together. God, we pray that you would ground us in this very moment of confessing and realizing that Jesus is our only hope. And that without you, we are lost.